You're listening to the Yeshiva of Newark at IDT podcast. I'm your host and curator, Rabbi Aprom Kivalevich, and I hope you enjoy this episode. This is Standing in Two Worlds. I'm Aprom Kivalevich, and I'm joined in Yerushalayim Erech by Dr. Sam Juni. Dr. Juni, uh, we've talked on this program about, so I, I think the idea of of managing difficult situations and being able to restore balance uh, is, 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 is crucial. And this is even beyond any uh, specific issue that we have today, but I think it's exacerbated by everything that's going on and things that we've talked about on this program. And I, I would like you, Dr. J, to give us uh, sort of a, 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 the response of a psychologist and a doctor and a person of, of science uh, and especially how we can manage and and get through. And I know we've talked about managing uh, difficult situations before, but perhaps you can actually you know, throw open things even in a bigger way and, and then tell us maybe even from some, and we've heard this from many of our listeners, uh, some examples from your practice and from what you've observed uh, that could give us some direction. Okay, that's it. That's your. That, that, that's what you have to work with today. All right. Again, thank you very much for having me here and giving me this podium. Okay, so let me say, Rabbi, you're ahead of me because you're phrasing all this in physiological terms, which I believe ultimately is the correct way to phrase it. It's just that I don't think that we are there scientifically to have an exact mapping of what we experience phenomenologically or personally, which we don't experience physiology, we experience feelings and the corresponding physiology. So if you don't mind, I'd like to veer away from this and get into psychology, which is more my specialty. But before I do, I just wanted to mention, um, I don't believe that adrenaline is harmful for you. And I'm not saying you imply that, but it just I, I think I heard some undertones there. Essentially, we work with um, two systems, the sympathetic and the parasympathetic system. The sympathetic system is basically when we mobilize to do, to react to something that's urgent or an emergency. And the parasympathetic system is maintenance, like thinking and digestion and um, um, relaxing and having relationships. And those two can't exist simultaneously. The body is primed one way or the other. And the real danger is when you don't allow alternation. If you're totally in the, in the parasympathetic system, you become a vegetable. You do nothing and it's not healthy. And your heart actually gets into trouble. What they're suggesting now in exercises, which I'm involved in, is burst exercises, which means doing some sympathetic followed by some parasympathetic. So that, that's just parenthetical. So I'm going to talk to the topic that you mentioned, and I'll try to present it to you with, with some examples of the, the life I've had both professionally and sociologically when we made our transition to Israel starting at about hmm, 15 years ago. We had a slow transition. So let me give you some background here. So <clears throat> in graduate school, I took a course, a course in, in crisis prevention. Where I worked at a suicide center, and the, the assignment we had was to find a crisis situation and do a paper on it. And I remember going for a Shabbat to some friends, and um, they had a sibling who was severely damaged. And I looked at the family, and I was sitting there, it was all of Shabbat, 
And I said, wait a moment, these guys are in crisis. Now, I used to think crisis means something that just happened and it's short term. And this, this severely disabled person they had was in his middle 20s, actually, you know, same age as my friend. And I said, wait a moment, these guys are in a crisis, but this crisis has been existing for 27 or 28 years. And it basically turned around my understanding of crisis to try to accommodate the concept of a chronic crisis, which is almost a oxymoron, a chronic crisis. And it speaks to the notion that you said about people being in a state of emergency for many years, so to speak. And human beings are not made that way. Human beings are made to deal with the crisis and get rid of it. How do you get rid of it? You either get rid of it by coming up with a way of getting rid of the situation, or you get rid of it intrapsychically in your own mind. You manage to make peace with it somehow, and then it stops being a crisis situation that becomes part of your life. Right? So that, that's pretty understandable. So let me start just with one story, okay? Um, Israel has this nice Tzedakah foundation, basically run by um, bells, by bells of all people, that if you have a, an emergency medical situation that cannot be dealt with, they will pay everything to get you to a place that can do it, and often that's the United States. So I once remember like an hour before I was supposed to give a major lecture at NYU, I get this phone call saying, hey, this is your cousin speaking, you know, speaking in Hebrew. Um, they just um, uh, landed in New York last night. Their daughter has brain surgery. Their daughter has a severe case of brain cancer. And the only um, person who's willing to tackle it is a junior, what is it, a, an assistant professor at NYU, which is where I was. And the guy's coming in to decide what, to explain to them whether they should do the surgery or not. They don't speak any English. I mean, they don't speak any English, they'd like me to come in. And that was quite a crisis for me because I had this major lecture to do. I canceled the lecture and I showed up there and I met with the doctor and the doctor was uh, like me, an assistant professor at that time. And he came up with some shtick, how to deal with the brain cancer, which had metastasized to the point that it had life, um, life aspects of the brain that are necessary for life. You can't just eradicate it. And he came up with some experimental program of boring out a little hole in the middle of the cancer, and then it disappears. Now, I dealt with it. I saw there was no science there whatsoever, but his track record looked very good. So I was impressed, and uh, I basically told him to go ahead with the surgery, um, but you know, they had to wait or whatever, and I said, look, I blew my day. I blew my lecture. I said, look, you guys have been sitting here, what? Oh, 24 hours or so, nonstop. I say, pick yourself up right now and get out, okay? I said, get out. You walk, I told them how to get, walk all the way to Fifth Avenue, it's like a half hour walk, walk through the stores. I'm sitting with this child. If anybody comes in to prep, I'm here. Okay, just get out, all right? I've picked Baruch Hashem, person recovered. She's doing very nicely. Little doesn't B'nai Barak has a bunch of kids. And anytime I've spoken to my cousins, they say, wow, have you been a help? What was the help? That I kicked them out. When I kicked them out, they were away for two hours. They said, that made us sane. We would have gone bonkers. So that's the, that's the situation we're talking about here. And now it was too chronic for them to cope with or even know what's happening. And they, that was the biggest, I think I did them a much bigger favor by evaluating that stuff and deciding to do the surgery, but that's their particular Right. And so in other words, what, what they uh, felt the big Akara Satov to you, the big uh, appreciation was that you showed them what was important and they were able now, uh, Sam, to use that 
consistently. In other words, yes, yes, yes. clearly they weren't out of the woods right away, but they remembered the stridency of their cousin telling them, you need a break, which, right. which gave them the sense of a break helped us so much. Now we've learned this. Now we can now incorporate this and control and, our situation. That's, and, that's, they that, felt guilt. They felt guilt. They're here. They flew in, you know, and they're leaving this, you know, and, um, you know, they didn't know me well. I knew their parents well. They, they're leaving this with this guy, a guy with a white coat. What do you, you know? I said, no, you leave this kid and get out. I'm in charge. And th- that helped them. Okay. So let's, let's talk about, um, and you what you know as well as I do that respite uh, services are extremely important, especially with uh, sure. situations people we, we've we've talked on this program uh, about uh, dealing with people with special needs and especially if they if they are living with you in the house and we talked about carving out space last time and other times. So this is really part of I think of the same phenomena of the idea that uh, that that. that you cannot push yourself to to the end. You can't always be on the uh, on the cutting edge. There, it, 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 no matter how strong you feel you are, this is a type of situation that everybody and will that, shatter. And from. Productive. It's you need to have the you know the natural um, pattern of withdrawing and coming back. You can't keep at it. You run out of steam. You have to recharge a battery. Otherwise, the battery dies. So I want to address two other things. I mean, I want to address just the entire concept of chronic crisis and apply it to the Israeli mentality. And I also want to, well, let me give you one more example, okay? Um, I have a close relative, I mean, a couple who have a child who is um, moderately disabled. And this couple consists of the parents, it's a man and a woman. Um, the guy is <laughs> You have to say so- that, you have to say that in today's time, yes. Yes, I don't want to get sued. Okay, so the fellow is, I mean, they're both nominally uh, orthodox. The fellow is not so theologically orthodox. The wife is. So um, when this child was born, the wife, I mean, both of them went through some existential crisis, and the wife managed to accept it. She, theologically, and the way she understands faith working, she managed to accept it. The husband did not manage to accept it. All right, so um, fast forward um, 20 some odd years later, um, the child is in a specialized institution, not with the parents, and comes home every couple of weeks for Shabbat. Um, Nominally, it looks like a pleasant time, but what happens is every time the child comes home, when the child goes back to the institution, the husband decompensates. Okay, gets depressed, gets grouchy, can't deal with himself, takes a couple of days to stabilize. The wife does not have that reaction at all. Um, What's going on is that the husband, because he did not manage to come up with any way to deal with this, since he is not so theologically in tune, feels like he's in a crisis, the same crisis he was at in the beginning. Is there a narcissistic crisis? Probably, because this fellow is, you know, smart, accomplished, and here, what's going on? The things are not happening, things are not working, and never forgave himself, not that it makes sense, but feels guilty, never forgave God, never forgave his wife, everybody is guilty, <laughs> and he's constantly harping on it. How does he deal with it? By suppression. Knocks it out, puts it out of the mind, equivalent of Junie telling the B'nai Brock parents to take a walk out of NYU hospital. He takes a walk. 
He's out on the walk, and that's why he deals with it. And then there's a scab that forms. It stays for a couple of weeks, a month, two months. I don't know how often it is the kid comes to the parents for Shabbat. But when the kid is brought with the wheelchair, whatever, to the house on Shabbat, the scab is ripped off again, and it keeps going. So this guy has a, a, a basically a crisis that he deals with by suppressing totally, and then can't deal with that anymore because it's in his face. He rips open again. What's, so, interesting, um, what's interesting from that, what you're saying is that the wife um, who came to terms with it through some sort is of not deal, crisis situation. She is not in a crisis situation. I, I would, but, I, yeah. And I would say the wife basically is more in touch with the pain constantly, but it's not a harsh pain. It's more like an irritation or if only or what if, whereas the husband is dealing with something that's ripping at his soul and he deals with it by blocking it totally. So what the husband has said sometimes, when my child is not here, I don't even know she exists. And then she shows up, yeah! And it's not that he's not nice to her. He's very, very concerned with her. But basically, he's, um, he has to unblock it and the rips at him. This is what I. This is my understanding of what a. a, a I, you know, I, I just want to say that you know, I, I, I'm not. I don't know this couple, but I would say that they probably didn't start out at the same place either. In other words, it's not just when the child was born that that now they were faced with this issue. They probably, <laughs> you know, they were raised and 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 whatever their original souls were, the original uh, sensibilities were, it came to play uh, when this sure. thing happened. This is no, a- that, no, in fact, I can tell you that one of them was raised, I mean, intensely in this Holocaust kind of background. The other was not. The other American. Uh, okay. So, of course, I think they were both very hurt. They both had narcissistic um, injury, but... They one of them settled quickly, the other didn't settle at all. So uh, let me just take. Let, a- let, me, let, me just, let me just go one last thing on this because you mentioned the Holocaust. Yes. Um, one of our uh, the episodes that 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 I think really uh, I've got a lot of feedback about um, was when you spoke about your father, uh, and you spoke about his ability to somehow have a sense of humor and be able uh, to work uh, through this. And how he survived, and and, and and some of the comments of, of people that spoke to me about this were, uh, it gave them an insight of of, of how people survived the Holocaust, and it, it sounds to me that you know that was probably the same uh, dynamic. Yes, you're absolutely right because when I talk about talked about my father, I don't want to go there, but talking my father, I think my father dealt with the Holocaust the same way the father of this disabled person deals with her, which is basically, I think that he basically turned off. Like why I heard about some people saying, but my father, that he, I mean, he was, his story was he was stuck for a number of years after his family was killed and he was in hiding. And they they said that he looked like a Meshuganer. Meshuganer meaning he was not connected. He was very far from that before and after that. But at that point, he basically... He was not there. And my guess is that in Auschwitz itself, he existed day to day. And if you asked him, would ask him, what are you doing? What are you up to? I don't think you'd get an answer. Uh, just keep going. Disconnected, suppressed, not even repressed, suppressed. You suppress the whole reality. Yes, and that is a coping method. It's not the best coping method for sanity, but it's the best coping method for getting through because you're turning off all your senses. There's no danger if you don't perceive it. No problem. Out of sight, out of mind. That's a great way to deal with a chronic crisis also. I just don't think of it.
well, you know, again, as someone who's had some experience uh, dealing with uh, uh, persons who have uh, uh, issues and developmentally disabled, and I, I, you know, when I when I was dealing with my sister many many years ago, um, and I was fighting um, the people around her uh, who were claiming that she was less uh, cognizant than I was. And I had evidence from earlier uh, papers and documents from her hospital. What it seemed, what would seem clear to me, what occurred was that the 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 abuse that she had to suffer, uh, and it's I don't want to talk about that at length, at all maybe. Um, and and the horror of what she happened to her caused her to actually retreat to the point that it was impossible to bring her back. And so uh, I mean, they, these dynamics work just as well for someone who has all his marbles, so to speak, or not. You know, we all have marbles. The marbles are colored differently, but we're, we're there. So sure, to say, I don't see any dynamic difference between that and somebody who is like um, uh, profoundly psychiatrically disturbed or let's say profoundly intellectually challenged. Dynamic, the emotions are the same. It's the same setup. It's yeah, the same and, setup. And again, I, I, before you, I know you wanted to talk about the Israeli mentality. You know, one of the, one of the things we spoke about on, in, in, in these episodes was uh, Shalom Bias and how do you get along with your wife and, and, and things like that. You can have a situation where the couple is determined, they understand they're not going to get divorced, they're going to stay together, but there's certain issues that they stay away from, and they're also able to manage in a way by shutting out. And I think that that's the, the really the, the great methodology. Suppression works beautifully. Right. It's so like, hear no evil, see no evil, I don't see it, there is no problem, leave me alone. It works very nicely. And, and, and it could actually, although like you say, it's a, sometimes like a Band-Aid with a scab underneath, it could also allow a person to live a very long life. The There's no question that the fellow I'm talking about, the disabled kid, that if, he were, if it was in his face the whole time, he would pop his lid. He would stop <laughs> altogether. There's no Shiloh. Yeah, okay, I, let me move. But you are talking about Israeli society. Go ahead. Yeah. So let me just tell you, um, we started in Israel um, years ago, and we would come here at least once a year, and we would basically, the university would rent us an apartment so that we can do our work. And I remember just at the very beginning, starting with the apartment, so I would um, say, okay, here's what we need. We're spoiled Americans. We're on on the dole of the university. I want to have a place that has X, Y, and Z. So one of the things I said at first is, of course, an elevator. Fine. Then I said, I want a washer and a dryer. So a washer, they understood. A dryer, the point was, what do you need it for? Said, uh, excuse me? Ah! So we were looking at Diesenkopf Towers, which is the fanciest building in all of Tel Aviv, the tallest thing. We, 18th floor with the pool and the gym and the dorm, and I don't know what I had there. We go in there, beautiful apartment, strings going from the plasma TV to a dresser in the living room with clothing hanging on it. I said, you don't have a dryer here. They say, no, you don't need a dryer. What? Not you don't need it. What do you need it for? I said, whoa, what is wrong with these people? Okay, something's going on. These are not stupid people. These are Israeli intellectuals renting out their apartment for a fortune and saying you don't need I said, you know what? I'll buy the dryer. We'll pay. We'll buy a dryer. <laughs> no, we don't. You don't need a dryer in this apartment. What's wrong with hanging it all across? Right. So that, that, that was like I remember the first thing we, we crashed into, and then things like, like we, we wanted to have a cruise control in our car at the airport. Right. The mechanic says there is no thing, not such thing in Israel. I said there's no <laughs> such there's no such thing in Israel. So I look at the dashboard. I say here's a cruise control. 
It's not for you. What is going on here? Okay, like these are amenities. Okay, you don't want the amenities, but to say you don't need it and you stay away from it. Okay, and then I got into other kinds of interesting situations. Basically, Israelis out there are constantly looking for a fight. They're constantly looking for an argument. I said, why? All right, then, you know, you try to get on the bus. If you don't, by the way, you need elbows. Hashem made elbows for two reasons. First of all, if you ever want to go to a garretish, without your elbows, you get nowhere, you see nothing. And secondly, if you ever want to get on an Israeli bus, you don't get on a bus unless you push and trample someone because people will be ahead of you totally. And that's true also of I just want to say about the Garatish, there's another option, of course. Uh, you know, they say the joke, why is it that the, by the, by the Litvisha, the Kapotas, uh, they have the pockets in front, um, and by the Chesidisha, the pockets are uh, towards turned towards the side. So it allows mm-hmm. it allows people who aren't big, strong ger chesidim or strong elbows to actually hop on the back of the chesidim oh, and stick their okay. feet into the into the pockets. So this way, you can actually <laughs> see something. Got it. Okay. So the truth is, I've never been to a ger tish, but okay, let's not deal with that. Right. But let's, for instance, I mean, I, I, I've had incidents. Right. I'm waiting online in the supermarket. Everybody cuts in. Everybody cuts in with chutzpah and yell. I've been yelled at because like, I'm there and then the guy wants to cut in. Okay, then here's my conclusion. My conclusion was that Israelis are in a constant state of crisis. Um, things you're, are saying, always- you're saying the argumentative uh, personality that you discover in Israel yeah. everywhere, the fact that an Israeli will always argue with you and disagree with yeah. you is a byproduct of a crisis mentality. It's a byproduct of feeling you're in a bunker, right? And don't st- bother me with these Irish kitten. You know, why they, you know, you, you need a napkin? Leave me alone. Eat with your hands. I'm in the bathroom. This is the, whoever, I mean, when I started here in 2009, it was never soap in any bathroom. Leave me alone. Toilet paper. It was a Yakara Matthias. Not money-wise. They just wouldn't put it in the bathrooms. Think of it. You're in a war. You're being shot at. Things are exploding, and you're talking to me about toilet paper. And that was in a crisis situation. You don't think of niceties. You don't think of amenities. Now, so the, the the thing is that in Israel itself, the way I figured out the way it works is that if it was a constant thirty-year war, a two hundred-year war, like in the Caucasus, people would mamish stop functioning as human beings. Israelis do function as human beings, except in interactional situations like I just mentioned, but they cope with it because as soon as the war is over, it's blocked out totally. In fact, even during, we were, during the Gaza war, we were in Tel Aviv, the cafes, the night cafes, they were streaming, it was full at night and there was shooting like 20 miles away. Soldiers on leave were there and you looked at them, you would think it's mamish, they are on, they're living in Aruba, they don't have a single worry in their minds. They managed to block it out totally if they would not be able to block it out totally, they'd be maniacs consistently. So again, I, I see this in terms of a constant crisis as defining the Israeli mentality and defining, I mean, for instance, Israel is, Israel is great on high tech. They're great on high tech. Yet I cannot find a single person. We live in a fancy apartment. I have not found a single person who knows how to operate a timer on the heating system. So everybody has to have electricians install the timers because nobody has figured out the finer details. They figure out the high tech, everything works except for the last itty bit. Why? Think of it, when you're in the bunkers, you come up with the main solutions. Leave me alone with the little stuff. So I, so you went without a ration, at least you, you, you're living. So don't patch it with it. It's like the dryer. They don't, 
ways. A, a lot of the systems here are worked out 95%, and that was enough to be functional and to do a good job, and then leave me alone. So the, the common um, entrepreneuring system here is you develop something almost till the end, and then instead of ironing out the kinks, just sell it. Now it's move on. You've accomplished, you've captured this town, you've incarcerated these Arab soldiers. Now move on to something else because there's no time. Everything is rolling. You know, life is short. So this is the kind of mentality, and I see this as a constant crisis, and it affects, I think, the mental health of people here too, and it also affects their willingness to use suppression wholesale. My guess is that it spills over to interpersonal relationships too. I've not done any therapy with anybody here, and I don't plan to. It's not my specialty, but the diagnostics I've done, I've picked up that the crisis situation or the crisis mentality extends to interpersonal relationships as well. Yeah, yeah, so yeah. let's I, say- you know what? I, 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 Now that you're talking here, I, I- Let me just say, your romantic relationship here lacks niceties. There is a, I'm talking about the, the num from Island. Um, there is a proskite there. There's a, 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 a banality that's there because it's like here today, gone tomorrow. We don't bother with niceties. We don't I, bother. You, 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 you can like talk to a, to a, uh, it's a date the way you talk to a, to a rude waiter. The niceties right. are not. Yeah, yeah, because no, I, 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 because I, the Velt Brent, the world is burning. Don't bother me with two yacht. Well, again, the question is, you know, first of all, is that a is is, is that a perception uh, that is a hundred percent accurate, or is it something that needs to be accepted? Otherwise, you wouldn't be ready when the bombs start uh, coming in from Stay Road uh, on Stay Road. You have six seconds. Yes, you're there schmoozing with someone about the philosophy of Rabbi Sachs, and you have six seconds all of a sudden to get to a shelter. Come on. Uh, you know, now, what I would say is our your little uh, it wasn't little your very precise uh, description of the Israeli mentality coming from an American. I, I think we should uh, package this uh, episode and send it to President-elect Joe Biden, because I think one of the things that when he was vice president that got him so upset was how he was dealt with when he was in Israel and, uh, you know, perceived slights with the Israelis and with Netanyahu, whoever it was, that uh, had done things and opening up a, uh, a, a you know, uh, the uh, settlement in, in right. Rat, to the point that it's almost like a slap in the face. How could you act like this? You know, and, mm-hmm. and, and it caused reverberations. And it also caused, even in the last election, the election we just had, uh, people feeling, oh, Biden is no friend of Israel. Uh, remember how upset he was. Remember how he uh, castigated us. Trump never did anything like that. And I think part of it might be, hopefully Biden will get uh, people who can listen to what Sam Juni says about the Israeli mindset. And that sure. if you understand where they're coming from, so you realize that, hey, you know, even if you grow up like Biden supposedly did in hard scrabble Scranton and pushes his way through, but living in America makes you a very different person than living in Israel. In Israel. Main point is if you're, you know, if you're in the middle of having a stroke and you go into the hospital and somebody's in the way, you don't say, excuse me. You use the Gerer method. You push him because you have four seconds before your brain pops. Right, right, but which, but, but it spills over even to yes, it, it spills, spills over, over even into like you say into the when a state when Biden will make a state visit, he needs to understand that he might, you know, uh, hmm, what's going on here. I, I think people uh, we're talking about Israelis, and, and again, I'm just speaking from a sociological perspective, and I know a little bit about sociology. Uh, one of the the anomalies, of course, of Israel is is that you go there and 
an American who, who goes there expects, like you did, a certain American mentality because they have all the American products. There's almost a fascination with things of the West, and yet they're not Western. You know, if, if you would go to Saudi Arabia, if you go to Bahrain, if you would go to Emirates, you know that there's going to be a different mentality. You know that you're supposed to bow. You, under, you see the, 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 the dress. What's 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 strange is, in many ways, you go to Eretz Yisrael and you expect, well, isn't it just like the United States? Isn't it just like North America? Isn't it just like Western Europe? The answer is no, and the mentality is is, is very different. If they would be dressing in ceremonial Japanese clothing, it might be easier for us. But the problem yeah. is they look like us. They seem to have the same outward experience, and and some of us are, and some of them are our cousins that we're related to, and that gulf. I think is sometimes why Americans sometimes have a problem understanding what's going on. Rabbi, let me put my foot in my mouth. I'm pretty good at this, okay? So I was, we were very, my wife and I were very impressed. We went to visit the anti-Netanyahu protests that happened several days a week, especially Shabbos night in Yerushalayim. And we were like thrown by the venom. You know, it's people there are not just protesting. They are furious. They're freaking out. And again, we said, of course, they're freaking out because they wait. from their perspective, their world is crashing in. And here's somebody who can do something about it and is not. And then I made the transition when I saw, a lot, I mean, I actually spoke to some people in America who felt just as crisis mode with Trump, which is interesting. And they were doing, these are civil people. And, you know, nasty things and nasty things that are not part of normal discourse. I mean, you don't like a candidate, fine. I mean, there are people that sometimes I'd want to talk to them. They say, I can't talk to you about it because I'm going to pop. Literally, like, like somebody has a heart condition and you're pushing them on a treadmill. I say, hey, you're a normal person. The point is that they also, for whatever reason, perceive that as a crisis situation where the world is crashing down. And when, and when the world is coming around, you're in a bunker and you can't afford to say, yes, I disagree with what Trump is doing. What you say, he's a higher and a Russia and a crazy and blah, blah, you pile around. And I've heard the same, it's literally a parallel between the anti-Netanyahu stuff and anti-Trump stuff. And I'm trying to not wedge my foot too far into my mouth, but I'm just trying to reflect sociologically that when you feel that your world is crashing down around you, your regular nimusim, your regular manners, your regular style of interacting, and your normal parasympathetic style of thinking gets suspended. You turn into the equivalent of a mouse chased by a cat. You don't have any niceties. You don't consider ancillary things other than I got to get away from here fast well, I got to save the situation. And if I trample on some people, by the way, or if I elbow somebody, or if some disabled lady ends up not getting on the bus, it doesn't matter because I have to get home because. And the because might be benign, but in your mind, everything is a life-altering situation. Yeah, well, I, I, let, let's wrap this up, uh, Dr. J, with, with an, uh, giving people from your perspective, and I'll, I'll just say a little bit from my perspective, how they can... Uh, manage this, how they can help themselves, other than the first thing I think we both agree is understanding the phenomena at play, not to be a puppet that is just being moved by what's going on around you, but understanding what the strings are. And that's, that's, and and maybe this, you're... And you're talking maybe about self-empowerment also, perhaps. Right, which... Trying to get some control over the situation by whatever means, yeah. Yeah, so uh, so here's where what I would suggest, and 
you know, we you, you mentioned uh, the late uh, Rabbi Jonathan Sachs, uh, who incredible loss for for Klal Yisrael uh, last week. I was thinking of him when I said empowerment. Yes. Yeah. So, so one of the things I think one can do um, is learn. You know, in other words, whether for me, of course, it would be you know a, a world of Torah to to put your mind in that you can then now shine that perspective, similar to your friend's wife who has a theological perspective that helps her every week. I think what we could do during this period of COVID as well, look, you know, I, I was thinking about it this morning, Rabbi David Feinstein, a contributing factor to his death was COVID. Um, so many people uh, would still be with us had it not, if, if this machla would not be here. Uh, to constantly think about it, to dwell on it, uh, to obsess about it, what one can do is come with up with either a theological perspective to allow them to make peace with it, or what I would say is, um, it's not like your father who just went into a different world, but actually get yourself so, as David Feinstein said, get yourself so fartifed in learning when he when he was asked, why do we say Why do we say learning is so great because it leads to action? The sim- simple shot, of course, is you don't if you don't read the uh, manual, you don't know what to do. But Reb Dabit said many times when you read the manual, you get confused <laughs> because there's so much information there. You're still not exactly sure how to act. There's this opinion and that opinion. So how is it that learning helps? Maybe what you should do is is just basically, uh, you know, not learn about it. Just ask somebody what to do and, and push the button. The problem with that is, of course, <laughs> is that you don't feel agency. You don't feel like you really are doing anything. But what learning can do is it can get you so as I would say, fartift, or uh, that's his word, I would say farkishift. <laughs> in other words, you get so entranced and so, in, it, it, it gets to be so beautiful what you're thinking about, about the ideas that you're thinking about, that you submit yourself and say, wow, there's a lot more here than I know. And I'm really enjoying what I'm doing. And, and I don't have complete control, but I'm going to do the right thing anyway. I'm not going to let my personal feelings uh, ruin what, what, what could be a, a very constructive life. Learning itself, as Reb David Feinstein taught us, can bring to good action, even if it's not directly related to what your actions are. The fact is, is that it's not, now you could say you need a hobby, maybe, <laughs> watch movies, watch football games. To me, of course, something that relates to your mind and to your emotion and to your feelings, music, opera, whatever it is, I think those are things that can help you uh, deal with those things. Maybe what I'm saying is very pedestrian, but I, but I think it, 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 to me that would be an option for a situation that y- even you haven't really given us a straight solution for. I, I don't know a solution. What you're saying sounds fine. I'm not sure that it would be able to resonate with people who don't have that kind of um, transcendent option in their life. Most people are mired in day-to-day issues, and they don't quite see how they can super uh, transcend it or supersede it by coming up with some higher order. Um, so I have to tell you, you know, as a um, you know, as a um, diagnostician, I find that people who just practice denial do pretty well. <laughs> I mean, compared to the options, I don't, you know. Again, if you are a lofty person, if you're Jonathan Sachs, I I think you'd be able to solve it differently. I'm just not sure. I don't know how many people could relate to that. I'm wondering if I could relate to that. I don't know. 
I would challenge you on that, Sam, because I would say that if you sunk your teeth like a bulldog into some new uh, study, empirical evidence, and you would be so excited by it that I think that you know you wouldn't care so much about uh, you know the, the problems of uh, of Israeli society bothering you or whatever it is that might be bothering you, because you know what you're thinking about. You've got your paper, you've got your ideas, and and and, and you've got your eye on the prize that is percolating in your brain. And that, I think, is something that uh, ultimately uh, calms you and releases in the endorphins, <laughs> not the adrenaline. Again, I might be I totally it. wrong, but I think it releases the endorphins that gives yep. you that calm ability. Anyway, that's a bunch of speculation on my part. I'm completely unqualified, but uh, a hammer likes to hit a nail. So, Dr. J, thanks a lot for, for your insight today, and uh, uh, we'll hopefully uh, be back next week. And with another episode of Standing in Two Worlds. Thanks for joining us for another episode from the Yeshiva of Newark at IDT Podcast. Be sure to subscribe on your favorite podcast app so you don't miss a single episode.